You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. Today we're going to be focused on a very interesting topic that we actually got from our Tax Smart Insiders community, and that is how to properly evaluate a syndication opportunity. So if you're out there in the marketplace, there's a, a million and one real estate syndicators and a million and one opportunities you can invest in, but how do you know how to evaluate? How do you know which one is the right one for you? Well, we're going to be joined here today by Jim Pfeiffer, who is president and CEO of Leftfield Investors, and their mission is to help build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets to generate cash flow. We're going to dive into all of that in just one second after a quick word from our sponsor. Conventional investment strategies are changing. Gone are the days of investing in real estate strictly off of pro forma spreadsheets. The new market landscape has many investors reevaluating their portfolios and looking for the best place to passively earn a safe, consistent return. The Dual City Advantage Fund is an evergreen 506C open-ended fund that specializes in investing in commercial real estate. Dual City's ideal investor is an accredited investor who wants a portion of their portfolio in passive and diverse real estate investments without having the high risks of a single syndication. The Dual City Advantage Fund is outpacing public REIT ETFs by more than double, and while the rest of the market has been in flux, it has delivered consistent quarterly returns to its investors since its inception. To learn more about Dual City's value, strategies, and long-term vision, visit www.dualcityinvestments.com tom or call 846 846- 757-2429. Again, that's www.dualcityinvestments.com slash Tom or call 864-757-2429. All right. And we're back. So Jim, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background and how you got involved in real estate? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, first of all. And, and it's been kind of an interesting road for me. I I think this is career number six, maybe. I started out in business, and then I was a teacher for a while, a financial advisor, and that's really where I started learning about money. I was a finance major in college, so I was always into the stock market, and you know, just I knew the best way to build wealth was to put all your money in your 401k and then uh, just wait a while, 30, 35 years, retire, and then, and then you're good, right? And that's what I, I thought. And then as a financial advisor, they kind of re-educate you as to how money works. And as they were doing that, and of course, they're always pushing the uh, the paper assets, right? Because that's what you're licensed for as a financial advisor. And I became an accidental landlord. So we had a rental property that I managed for five years. And as I was learning, relearning about money, I had this asset that was performing on the side. And it kind of made me think, I'm not sure these paper assets are really where I want to be. And so I kind of had that I don't know, cognitive distance for a few years as I was a financial advisor, I was getting more and more into real estate. I always prided myself on putting my clients in the same things I was investing in. And I could no longer do that, right? Because as a financial advisor, you can't advise people to do real estate because one, you're not licensed for it. And two, you you don't get paid for it. So slowly I kind of transitioned and I started uh, buying more active rentals. And, you know, I got up to maybe 38 doors. And I really realized that real estate's where I want to be. 
uh, quit financial advising to do some of the real estate stuff. I had to get rid of my licenses because they weren't compatible with some of the things I wanted to do. And then I realized I wasn't that good at operating real estate, like active real estate. I had property managers and I was constantly micromanaging them and fighting with them, trying to get rents this way or that way. And it was just, it just wasn't working, but I was making a lot of money, not the way I thought, not with cash flow, but with appreciation. And so then I found this wonderful thing called passive investing in syndications. And immediately, I mean, I didn't do it right at first, but immediately I thought, you know what, this is how I want to do it. Hire an asset manager who is going to manage the asset for me. My job is going to be what we're talking about today, evaluate the operator, evaluate the deal. And then once I give them my, you know, send the wire, I just sit back and hopefully collect distributions and get reports. That's what I do now. I'm a full-time passive investor. I run a community called Left Field Investors, which is basically just a community that serves to educate, and provide a network and provide some deal flow to people who want to create financial freedom for themselves through investing in passive real estate syndications. Awesome. Awesome story. I think a lot of people in the real estate space have a similar path, but not necessarily going the financial advising route, but kind of a similar yeah. realization at some point. They're like, okay, maybe the paper assets aren't going to get me to where I want to go. Maybe there's a better way. And that's how they kind of stumble across real estate. You know, Specifically, when we're looking at syndications, there's a ton of opportunities out there. There's a ton of different sponsors from every which angle, asset class, type of cash flow, appreciation plays, value add, what have you. When you're looking at opportunities, how do you evaluate a syndication? How do you know if it's worthy of, of investment? Well, I think there's a few steps to do before you get there. And, and offline, we, we were kind of talking right about the first one is you got to figure out what your goals are or what kind of assets you're looking to accumulate or invest in, right? And so when I first started, in passive investing, I had a self-directed IRA, right, from an old 401k and it had cash in it. And I was super excited to get into, you know, syndications. And so I went to a syndication seminar, just an in-person meetup, which is the first one I went to in real estate. And I was like, oh, is this serious? Am I going to do this? And I went and I actually went thinking I was going to be a syndicator. But when I, after five minutes, I learned, no, that, that's not what I want to do. But I just started basically going up to people and saying, hello, you're a syndicator. Here's some money, right? Just invest this for me. And that's a horrible way to do it. One, I'm not analyzing the sponsors. I'm just assuming because they're you know, at a seminar that they know what they're doing. But also, I didn't even have an idea of what kind of assets I wanted. So I invested in a coffee farm in Belize, uh, you know, the the um no chocolate in Belize and coffee in Panama. I invested in self-storage deal from these guys who I, I didn't even know. And that 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 hasn't gone well. But I didn't know do I want cash flow? Do I want appreciation? So after that, I, I figured out, and we'll talk about this better ways to find sponsors, but I still didn't have my goals because the next thing I did was I just started investing with operators for appreciation, right? But I I don't have a W-2. I don't have any income. I need to invest for cash flow, right? So I didn't align my needs with what I was actually doing. So the first thing I think you got to do is think, okay, do I have a W-2? Am I, am I looking to retire in 10 years? So I'm looking for deals that have a lot of appreciation or am I looking to maybe reduce the W-2 immediately and I need cash flow? And so once you figure that out, then you can take the next step, which is Okay, figure out maybe some asset classes and operators. Operators is absolutely, in my opinion, the number one thing you need to evaluate. But there's a few other steps you got to do before you get to that point. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Just recently, I realized the importance of understanding you know, your own personal investment criteria and goals because 
I had made an investment right in in an opportunity that's probably going to do just fine. However, when I looked at the return profile for it and how it all worked again, when I took a double look at a double like a double take on it, I was like, maybe this is this is probably below certain standards that I would normally choose. And then there another opportunity came up that actually met those standards. And I'm like, okay, now the capital is placed in this other opportunity, which will probably do just fine. I'm not worried about it performing. It's just that okay. When you're making an investment in a syndication that you're going to lock up your capital for three, five, seven years, whatever the case may be, you have to know what your goals are, what your investment criteria is, what your return profile is. Because once you place that capital, it's gone. And if you make a subpar investment for your standards, you might be left thinking, oh, wow, I missed the gate on that or I missed the ball. So, yeah, I think there's there's a couple of things there that you mentioned is, is that before you start this, you need to understand that syndications are long-term illiquid investments completely out of your control, right? So if you need the capital in five years, you might not be able to access it. So it doesn't even matter to me, like, you know, you do have to pick, does this, it might be a, an asset that may be under your standards, but is it right for you? And are you going to be okay being in that investment for three or five or 10 years? And so that's one of the key things is you have to realize this capital that you're placing is no longer accessible. As soon as you send that wire, you can ask for it back, but the operator is not going to give it to you. And if they do, it's not going to be at the same price you bought in for. So you really need to understand that these are long-term illiquid investments. Absolutely. Absolutely. So once we understand what the goals are, what the criteria is, what's the next step do they take from there to evaluate and start like looking at the deal flow? So as you said, you, you got your goals, you kind of, and what I do, I'm not super good at goal setting. People have all these fancy ways to do it. What I do usually is at the beginning of the year, I write down, hey, I want to invest in six syndications and here's the asset classes, right? And that's just kind of a guide because you cannot control deal flow, right? It's not like you could, like in the stock market, you, could, you can analyze a bunch of companies and say, okay, I'm going to go invest in Apple today. But if you say, hey, I want a multifamily deal with XYZ operator, you got to sit there. And wait to have a deal, right? So you you can't really have specific goals. But the next step after you kind of have the goals, you figure out kind of what you want to do. You got to find sponsors, operators, GPs. Those are all kind of similar terms, capital raisers. You got to find someone to invest your money with. And to me, that is the most important decision you're going to make. And that's where the bulk of the evaluation goes. Because as people say, you can have a bad operator can mess up a good deal and a good operator can maybe do okay on a on an okay deal or a, or a poor deal. But if you have a bad operator, you're going to be struggling. And so the first thing you do is, is try to analyze and vet the operator. And there's a, people have a lot of different ways to do that. And I can kind of, if you like, I can kind of start with how I did it at first and then how I do it now. So I kind of mentioned the way I did it. The very first way was go to a seminar, meet some people and just start throwing money at them. Really bad way to do it. Some of those deals turned out okay. Some of those deals turned out not as well. And the self-storage deal is a disaster. So that's not a good way to do it. But it was an education for me. I learned, okay, don't just go to a seminar and assume that everybody's a quality operator. So then I started listening to a lot of podcasts, right? I started reading books. I started educating myself. And in these podcasts, I would hear an operator and then I would just call them up. And I'd talk to them for a half hour and then maybe they'd have a deal they'd send to me and I'd evaluate it and look at it. And then maybe I'd talk to them again for 15 minutes or a half hour about the specific deal. So that was much better, but still I'm talking to someone for an hour, maybe total. And then I have to decide, am I going to wire them $50,000 or $100,000? 
I don't know them. I don't know if they're just an excellent marketer slash podcaster or they an excellent asset manager. And there's no way I can know that, right? Again, these are long-term illiquid investments. So it's going to take a long time. If I invest today, I'm not going to know if I made the right decision for three, five, 10 years. So I had better results you know, interviewing people on the podcast and finding operators that way, but it was far from perfect. And so now that I have a community, you know, at Left Field Investors, we have 1,800 people in our community. So now when I want to vet an operator, I'm not going to invest with an operator, a new operator, unless they're referred to me by somebody in my community who I know, like, and trust who's already invested with them. And I don't mean they have to have invested with them and gone full cycle. I mean, they've invested with them long enough to see that, hey, the wire went somewhere and it worked, right? They got my capital. They invested it for me. That's number one. Number two, they're sending me regular communications, regular reports, or the other investor that referred me. They're sending them reports and they've gotten distributions. Then I still do all the same analysis, which we can talk about, but I'm starting from a place of trust, right? I trust this person. They trust the operator, trust transfers. And so that's why as we talk, you'll find that I'm all about community. I believe that the only way to be successful as a passive investor is to be part of some community because you can't walk out your front door and talk to your neighbors and family and say, hey, I'm investing in real estate syndications. What do you think about that? They're going to think you're crazy. Why aren't you putting all your money in your 401k, right? So having a community gives you the ability to test sponsors because now we have 1,800 people in this community. There's thousands of sponsors that everybody knows, and there's the good ones, the bad ones, and the and the ones in between, and, and we just share information. So it is really a huge advantage. Now, you still have to do all your due diligence. You can't just rely on the community to do everything for you, but it's a great jumping off point. Do you team up with people in your community and go in as a group? Yeah. So we do that um, through this company uh, called TribeVest. They're really a great partner of ours. What we do we evaluate deals together, but we can also commingle our equity or our capital, you know, pull it together in an LLC and invest in multiple different deals. Or what we also do is TribeVest has a feature called an open tribe, which it'll be a single purpose entity for one operator. Let's say an operator has a cutoff of a million dollars where you'll get a higher pref and, and higher returns. Well, I'm not going to invest a million dollars in one single deal. But if I get all the community members together and we get a million dollars together and we invest through this single purpose entity, then um, we can get those higher returns. So that's definitely part of it. Do you have to have any sort of licensing requirements since you're the leader of the community or does that expose you to any risk? We've gone around and around on that. And it really depends on who you talk to. But we, we've talked to several attorneys and SEC attorneys as well. And the way that TribeVest does it is it's on their platform. So every decision has to be voted on by all members. So there's no one that's active and then a bunch of people that are passive. So technically, it's not a syndication. It's an investment club, I guess, is how you would categorize yeah. it. So um, we don't think there's those SEC issues there. But everyone needs to obviously do their own due diligence and, and yeah. come to that determination. That's really interesting. All right. Well, thanks for answering that about your community. So circling back on the investment criteria. I think you brought up a lot of really good points. You know, I think that you can go to these conferences and kind of get like swept up in the excitement of the conference. And when people are there speaking or sponsoring, it's almost as if the event organizers are endorsing those speakers and sponsors. And, and I don't think that's like necessarily intentional, but that's what you can feel whenever you go to these types of things. So I totally understand the you know, oh, I met this amazing sponsor at this conference and 
talked to him for 15 minutes and gave him $50,000 and it hasn't gone very well because we've, right. we've seen that in our over the span of our existence here as CPAs just you know people that are great at marketing and raising capital aren't necessarily great at operating deals and businesses so you do yes. have to be careful there but the other thing that I really liked what you said is you ask your community members or if somebody gives you a referral you're asking about the ongoing communication and it doesn't necessarily need to be somebody that went full cycle like you said but how professional are they running their shop and not to you know make a plug for our accounting services but the reality is that if they don't have an accounting team whether outsourced or just in-house they're not going to be managing your money effectively so and it's something that we've seen as well like especially a handful of years ago when everybody was seemingly taking these like guru how to raise capital you know seminars and stuff and yeah. they would come to us and they would say i just raised 10 million dollars and what are your fees for this and we'd be like you know twenty thousand dollars between accounting and tax preparation and they would go well my budget's 800 bucks uh, we literally had that conversation <laughs> multiple times and finally i was like where are you getting this information from and they told me where it was coming from and i was like okay now right. this is making sense so it's just like do you really want to invest with the person that's not going to treat your money very professionally? And so that's what I've learned being on this side of the coin. I haven't made an LP investment yet because I've seen <laughs> just like behind the curtains of like right. just how poorly a lot of this stuff is managed. But there are really good operators out there that do a phenomenal job and they are very professional. They have a professional team in place, They, whether outsourced or insourced. They communicate effectively on an ongoing basis. They deliver professional reports on an ongoing basis. If something's going wrong, they let you know immediately. They don't wait. So it's just like those like little features. But if you don't know this person, then you can't actually get that information until you right. make that investment. So yeah, really interesting, interesting thing. I will add one more thing that I think that everybody should be asking their sponsors is what type of debt are you using, right? So if you're using floating rate three or debt, uh, if you'd asked that question two years ago, maybe you would not have made that investment because I think that a lot of sponsors are going to get caught up in this rate hike situation where they were using floating rate three-year term debt and now they have to go either refinance or but they can't refinance because they don't have enough capital to refinance they, they didn't force the appreciation right. um you know rate caps are now a million dollars versus eighty thousand bucks so it's just uh always inquire about the debt they're using too yeah I, I totally agree and you mentioned something there that is probably the number one thing that i do when i evaluate a sponsor after i've kind of made sure that I've recommended by somebody that I know, like, and trust and all that stuff is communication. It is absolutely critical. And, and each person's different, right? But for me, it's a non-starter. I need to know, and I test it before I send you a wire, because if you're not going to communicate with me before I've wired you $100,000, what makes me think you're going to communicate with me after you have my money? So I test that. And we have some tools that we use to analyze the deal. And, and that provides us with a bunch of questions that I can ask. So what I do when I first see a deal is I send them an email with six or seven questions about their deal. And I'm testing them. I want to see how you respond, not only how, but how quickly, right? You need to respond to me within a reasonable amount of time, usually 24 hours or have a reason why you didn't. And it has to be a quality response. I don't want you to respond and say, yeah, we covered that in our webinar. Yeah, I know. I already watched the webinar. Now I'm testing you to see if you know your deal. So I'm expecting questions to be answered. And then even if you answer all my questions, I'll probably just reply and ask one more. 
even if I don't have a question, just to see, are you going to get annoyed with me? Because sometimes I'm a little high maintenance. Are you going to continue the dialogue? And if they're good to go, then yeah, I'm I'm in and I'm, I'll take the evaluation another step. But if if in that process, you're not responding or your responses aren't professional, as you said, or, or you're just kind of blowing it off, then I'm moving on because there are thousands of operators out there. And I heard on another podcast, I don't know if the numbers are accurate, but you know, 70% of the people out there syndicating deals right now are have only been doing it for three years. So that's another thing to look at, right? Anyone, any idiot could have made money the last 10 years. I can tell you that because I was that idiot that didn't know how to manage effectively active real estate. And I made a bunch of money because everybody did. But now is different. Now the sponsor is even more critical. Well, it's really easy to make money when rates are so low, right? When money's free or effectively free, it covers a lot of mistakes. It covers a lot of operational mistakes, covers a lot of underwriting mistakes. So people were making money because rates were just so low. But now that rates have shot up and shot up so quickly, now you have to, like the real operators are the ones that are going to be making money. And the real operators, to your point, not to say, you know, we've met some real operators that started over the past three years and I would be comfortable yeah. giving them my money. But those are few and far between in the sea of all the operators. But there are really solid operators that, you know, made it through the 08 crisis. Those are the folks that make me feel very comfortable. And frankly, the ones that make it through this next probably 12 to 24 months would make me feel comfortable to invest on an ongoing basis just because they handled the the debt issue effectively and they didn't sink as a result of it. Because I do think that we were at a conference last week. We're recording this middle of June. So we had a multifamily conference last week and we were talking to a bunch of people and there is a looming crisis here in multifamily real estate. Uh, we're actually going to have JC Castillo on to talk about that here in an upcoming episode. But that whole interest rates coming up, like if these operators are new and they bought multifamily property in the past handful of years and they used bridge, a lot of them used bridge debt to be competitive. Well, that bridge debt is, you know, a three-year term. So when does three years end? It ends in 2024 for a lot of these, a lot of these people. Right. And so the question is, okay, how do you get out of the property then? Because your payments are like doubling. Your rate cap has gone from, like I said, 80,000 bucks to now a million dollars. A lot of banks are forcing these operators now to escrow for that. So overnight, your escrow goes to 80K a month. And now you don't have any money for CapEx. So now you can't run your value add plan, meaning that you can't force the appreciation. And since the rates are all up, all of our values are down anyway, you've got these operators are kind of stuck. It's like, well, I can't refi because there's no equity. I can't sell because then I'd I'd be out of pocket. Like I would have to put probably more money up. So my options are do a capital call or give the keys back to the bank and just walk away from the deal. So anyway, through this conference, uh, a lot of people are thinking that there's just going to be a lot of loan modifications coming up, which would be best case, I think, for a lot of these people. But to your point, you know, if you started the last few years and you didn't know how to underwrite this type of environment, then you're one of the people that it's probably stuck right now with not a lot of options. And frankly, like if I had started over the last three years, I probably would have done the same thing because, you know, I just don't have any experience raising capital right. and running a deal. So that's like, that's the problem though. So on the LP side, how do you sift through those people like me who would have started and, you know, raised 10 million bucks and been like, oh crap, I didn't know the interest rates were going to double in 12 months. Uh, how do you sift through those people and then identify 
the solid operators. Yeah, um, that's the challenge, right? And you mentioned it. If you go back, you know, someone who made it through 08, then they've been through the cycles. But the thing is, the tax laws hadn't changed, as you guys know better than I do. Syndications were a thing, but they weren't as accessible. So there aren't as many of those people out there. And then you have all these new people doing it. And I'm not, you know, cracking on the new people, just like you're not. Like there, there are some out there that are excellent. And so you don't want to just say, I'm only going to invest with someone who started before 2008. You got to be a little bit more precise than that. And that's why, you know, it's so critical to engage with them. You're going to invest $50,000. It is not unreasonable to meet with them face to face first, right? Now, I haven't done that with everybody and the pandemic got in the way, but, you know, to go to these conferences is where you meet these people and you can tell a lot, some just shaking someone's hand and really getting to know them a little bit over a drink or a coffee or whatever, you know, it makes a difference. We were so much into Zoom and, and all of this, which has been immensely helpful, but just getting to know someone gives you some confidence that, oh, I'm sending my money somewhere and it's going to be managed effectively, right? And you, you mentioned it, LPs that are in these situations now, there's nothing you can do except try to evaluate whether it makes sense to participate in the capital call if it comes. Other than that, you're just kind of sitting and hoping because you made all your evaluations up front and there's nothing, there's nothing you can do now. And so the only comfort you get is if you chose an operator who is good at communicating, can tell you, hey, here's what we're doing. Because for me, if you're going to give me a capital call or give me bad news, if you've been communicating effectively the whole time, I can understand that, right? And I think also managing expectations. LPs over the last 10 years have gotten used to regular distributions like clockwork, the same amount every month or slowly increasing as the thing goes through and then getting a bunch of capital back quickly, right? Three years instead of five. That's not what's going to happen anymore. There's going to be some deals that you put money in with an operator that you know is a good operator and that deal is not going to go to pro forma. It's going to be less. They're going to withhold distributions. They're not going to hit their numbers. And you got to compare it to what else, right? Where else could you put your money? Okay, you put it in the stock market, you go to bed and you wake up the next morning and it's 30% less. Okay, so this is better than that, but we just have to understand that it's not going to be as easy and awesome as it was the last five years. That's not going to be our next five years, but it's a great opportunity, as you said, to start interacting with operators and see who comes through this. Because I can tell you in 12 months or 24 months, whenever we get to the other side of wherever we are, those are the operators that I'm going to be really focusing on. Like you made it and you didn't do capital calls or, or you did, but you got through these deals and they're fine. I'm going to put more capital with you. Well, exactly. And, and how do you get through the deals or how, how do you get through this period, right? Like how do you keep your deals alive? Because I know that there's a client of ours who has a substantial portfolio and he will self-fund the deals to keep them alive through any sort of like macro environment changes. And what that tells me is that the sponsor, this operator is extremely well capitalized himself, right? And it also tells me that he wants to continue running this business and growing this business in the future. Because if you don't try to keep the deal alive, what happens to your reputation? Well, it gets shot and it can be harder to raise capital in the future. So that's also an interesting thing that I will probably, if I were to invest in the future, that will be something that I'll be quizzing people on is just, okay, how did you handle 2023, 24, 25? How did you keep your deals alive? What types of things did you do to raise capital? And, you know, it doesn't necessarily, you know, it's it's great if the sponsor puts up all the cash, but 
that's not like what I'm specifically looking for. I just thought that that was right. a really interesting approach. Yeah, absolutely. Are you looking for a law firm that can handle your real estate transactions with expertise and efficiency? Thresher Law Offices is a premier boutique law firm specializing in real estate acquisitions, private placement syndications, debt and equity financings, and corporate transactions. Their team of experienced attorneys understands the complexities of real estate transactions from purchase agreements to fund offerings and everything in between. Thresher Law Offices advises their clients on structuring transactions for real estate development acquisitions, debt and equity financings, commercial leasings, and has extensive experience in private placement syndications, helping businesses raise capital through private offerings. Thresher Law Offices builds long-term relationships with the clients they serve, creating strategies and opportunities not just for today, but for your future needs as well. With their knowledge and expertise, you can trust that Thresher Law Offices will guide you through the legal process with ease and confidence as you make critical decisions that will shape the future of your business. Visit www.thresherpllc.com to learn more and schedule a free consultation. Again, to learn more and schedule a free consultation, visit www.thresherpllc.com. The link will also be in the show notes, but for right now, we'll dive right back into today's episode. All right, so if we we take it beyond the sponsor, sponsors absolutely the most important component of it, no doubt about it, because again, they're going to be the ones running the deal and you're going to be relying on them to execute. So knowing who you're investing with, knowing their capabilities, seeing their track record and and understanding everything we just talked about, super important. When we take it beyond the sponsor or beyond that point, is there anything you do when evaluating the opportunity itself or the deal itself once you know that you're going to be investing with a competent sponsor? Yeah. So I think in my mind, 80% of the work is done, right? Because I've evaluated the sponsor. I probably looked at some past deals. I've gotten comfortable with, with the people I'm working with. And so now I'm just sitting around waiting for a deal. They send me a deal. Now my work begins where I'm going to evaluate that deal. So I'm going to look at a bunch of different things, but one of them you know, is the market. Where is it at? Is it in a growth market? And those are, you know, Southeast, Southwest. There's obviously, we all know the hot markets, but there's other places too. There's some places in the Midwest that are really growing and they have reasons why those markets are good. So I'm, I'm going to look at the market and make sure it's something that, um, a market that I believe in. And then I'm also going to look at my current portfolio because, you know, if it's in Dallas, I might pass on the deal, even though it might be a great deal because I already have so much in Dallas. Right. So I, I also want to think about diversification. And, and I'm going to step back just for a second. Diversification, I think of I'm diversifying by operator, market, and asset class at least. And then maybe some other, you know, more minor diversifications. But so that's one thing. I'm going to look at the market. Then, you know, at left field investors, we have a, a deal analyzer and it's just an Excel spreadsheet. And we take the financials that the the operator sends us and we throw those in the in the spreadsheet and i'm i'm looking at a few things you know and i think the the more deals you look at you kind of figure out what are important metrics to you so you know one of those and and some of them are just small things right but taxes i always look at the taxes and the only thing i'm really looking for is what the taxes are now and what you have in the pro forma because if you just use the same number you're understating it. And that's sometimes where an operator can kind of slip up intentionally or not is, you know, usually once these deals sell, depending on the state you're in, the auditor then reevaluates and your taxes go up because the value of the property went up. So I always just look at that as a little check. I also look at vacancy, economic vacancy, because when I was an active investor, I just put vacancy at 5% for everything. Well, vacancy and economic vacancy are different. Economic vacancy includes some other metrics like loss to lease, and delinquency and things like that. So it should be higher than 5%, maybe 8%, maybe 10%, maybe 12%, depends on the market, the type of asset and all that stuff. But I just want to make sure that it's reasonable because if it's just 5%, 
doesn't mean I'm not going to invest, but I want to understand. That's going to be my question. Why is economic vacancy only 5%? So those are some of the things that I'm looking for. And I think you know that's why I like this deal analyzer tool we use. But however you come up with it, you're going to come up with three, four, five things that you look for in every deal that kind of say, that's going to be something I'm really going to pay attention to. But the other thing is, I don't want to, and I am not going to re-underwrite this deal as the operator does, right? That's their job. I've already vetted them. I've already said, yes, I think they're quality. I'm good to go. So I am just going to look at the deal, make sure it makes sense to me, make sure that you know I'm going to look at there, there's the documents, right? I'm not going to read the whole PPM, the private placement memorandum, but I'm going to check the executive summary of the opportunity they sent and make sure that the payouts, the waterfall, the pref, the back-end split, all that matches what the actual PPM and operating agreement say, right? So I'm going to do some spot checks of things like that, but I am not the kind of person that's going to dig in and underwrite the deal as if I'm going to operate it because I'm not, I'm hiring somebody else. One other thing I look at is the property management. You know, I know some people think, hey, you got to be vertically integrated and they have to own their own property management. Maybe I'm fine either way, but I want to know, you know, what the property manager is doing, what the responsibilities are, the rates they're charging and how that relationships works and what other properties they might be managing in the area. So those are just some of the things that I look for. Uh, that's awesome. I think it's a lot of things that some people um, overlook when looking at opportunities. So I think there's some key writer downers for some people probably listening, please don't do it while you're driving. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you know, when it comes to taxes, right? So we are the tax <laughs> podcast. And I know with a lot of private investments, there are tax implications that are a consideration when making the investment. How big of a component is that for you when you're looking at a deal? Does it always have to be uh, tax advantaged or are you agnostic or kind of how, how do you look at the tax aspects of investing in in limited partnership opportunities? That's a great question. You know, taxes and you guys know this much better than I do are the number one eroder of your wealth, right? There is nothing bigger than taxes. If you can reduce, eliminate, defer taxes legally, of course, you're going to be much better off. So it's a huge component for me. And usually if there's no tax benefit to a deal, I might just invest in that through my qualified accounts, my self-directed IRA or something like that. Because they always say you don't let the tail wag the dog when you come to the taxes or whatever. So I'm not going to invest in a deal just because it's got great tax benefits. But it's definitely a component. And it depends on where I am in my journey. When I first started out, I had all these active all this active real estate, I wanted to sell it. I didn't want to do a 1031 exchange, right? Because that requires you to get a bigger loan, a bigger property and stay active. So I did what my CPA calls the lazy 1031 and which other CPAs don't like that term because it's not at all lazy 1031, but I basically- think we coined that. That's BS. <laughs> oh, really? He, he thinks he did. So you, I'll put you guys together and you can fight about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, I'm just kidding. I don't think that we've ever coined anything. It's always like one of those things. I see people like fight about this online. Like, yeah. well, I said that first. And then you like go right back to like Roman history and you find out that these <laughs> you find the words. Things, like, dude, <laughs> right. no idea is a new idea, guys. Just relax. Yeah, we've, <laughs> we've called it the 1031 exchange light. That's what I've called. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, we oh, call really? it the lazy I've always referred to it as the lazy man's 1031. All right, yeah. whatever. <laughs> well, whatever it is, it's effective. And and I was able to sell all of my active real estate without paying the tax on it using this strategy. And for that specific event, I found an operator that did cost segregations and bonus depreciation really well. Like, you know, you invest 50 grand and we had between uh, 40 and one of them was even $55,000 
of loss in year one, which allows you to offset you know, the cash flow or in my case, offset the sales from the active property. So I'm a huge fan of, of that, but I'm not going to invest in a deal just for the tax benefits. The strategy overall, the tax benefit is, and I kind of whisper this sometimes, is I'm a full-time passive investor in real estate. I don't have a W-2 income. I don't really pay much in tax because of that. So it is possible, as you guys know, to defer, eliminate, reduce almost your entire tax burden by just investing in real estate. So for me, because I diversify in so many different ways, the tax benefits kind of just come along with it. I don't focus on them because I know I'm getting them because I have such a big chunk of passive loss stacked up. It's going to take me a while to unwind that because what happens is anytime you invest in a new LP deal, let's use hundred grand, for example, and let's say you get a 7% preferred return. So you're getting seven grand a year. You invest that hundred grand, you might get $60,000 in passive loss in year one. So now you have $7,000 that you're earning each year. It's going to take a while, I don't know, net nine years before you have to pay tax on those gains. And I'm simplifying things, I'm sure, and you guys understand tax way better than I do, but that's kind of how I look at it. So I don't do it specifically, but yes, the entire strategy of mine is to legally avoid taxes. Yeah. Not only that, but you could also invest in businesses if there were such opportunities that you're exposed to and not play an active role in that business. And as long as it's structured in a way that produces passive income for you, then you can use the real estate losses to offset that too. Just so that everybody's like on the same page, when we're talking about the lazy man 1031 or the 1031 light, as Tom refers to, what we're really talking about here is instead of doing a 1031 exchange, when you sell one of your properties, or if the syndication liquidates and gives you this large capital gain, you use passive losses to offset the gain on sale. In the passive losses, what happens is they unlock up to the amount of the gain, but they actually can offset your ordinary income. So the losses that you receive through the hold period are ordinary in character. And whenever you liquidate, that character does not change. And so what I mean is you can have capital gain coming in, but you can use these passive losses to offset your W-2 income if it works out like that, or your business income versus the passive losses specifically offsetting the capital gain income. So just want to make that clear to everybody. But that's what a lazy man 1031 exchange is. It's a, I've got this capital gain. How do I create passive losses in order to offset that gain? And generally, it's just investing in the next asset, running a cost segregation study, getting bonus depreciation, because that's going to produce a passive loss that would be unlocked up to the extent of the gain received from the passive activity that liquidated. Well, let me ask you a question. I know this is your podcast. So I'm not supposed to ask the questions, but what do you think the effect of going from 100% bonus depreciation and you know knocking off 20% every year, how is that going to affect the lazy 1031? Because my understanding from talking to some other CPAs was when we had 100% bonus depreciation, there was really no purpose to do a real 1031 exchange right? Because there's so many hoops you got to jump through. It's so complicated when you can do it just this easy, easy way. Is that still going to be possible? Or because bonus depreciation is being reduced, is that going to cause problems? Yeah, that's a great question. So with it dropping down to 80%, there's actually some other elements of depreciation that are, are happening in there that actually increase it from 80%. I think our advisory team did the math on it and it brings it into the 90s. Because what happens is you have the five and 15 year property that gets 
hit with 80% bonus depreciation, but then the remaining amount, that extra 20% is then being depreciated separately. Um, right. Accelerated depreciation methods. It still uh, goes over those five years, right? Or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Five yeah. And, and it's double declining balance on the five-year property. And it's like 150% on the 15-year property. So really it's like, I think it ends up being like, whatever the remaining five-year property is, it's like 40% of that gets taken in year one. So what Tom's referring to is, I think that it's like 92 or something percent. So 92% of all the five, seven, 15-year property is still taken in year one, but that's going to continue to go down to your point. So at some point, it's going to hurt, but I don't think it's going to hurt in 23 or 24. It might, might start hurting in 25. Right. And, you know, something's really interesting. There's actually a proposed bill out there uh, that was introduced recently where they actually want to extend 100% bonus depreciation from 2023 all the way through 2026. That's, I think, the uh, Build It in America Act that was introduced by the House. So we'll see if that actually passes. If it does, it appears it'll be retroactive. So in other words, there won't be 80% bonus depreciation. It would just be 100% this year. And that would be nice. But the point is, to answer your question with 80%, it's still quite powerful because of the accelerated depreciation of that five and 15 year property of that other 20%, as well as the actual building itself being 27 and a half or 39 years in the case of residential, excuse me, 27 and a half for residential, 39 for commercial, it still creeps up to about 92. But as it starts dropping down to 60, 40, 20%, assuming this bill is not passed, it's going to get weaker and weaker at that the power of that strategy will get weaker and weaker as it phases out. And I guess will that cause holds to be longer because you still, as you guys said, you get the depreciation over the hold period, right? And you're not just accelerating it as much. So if you invest in a deal every year for the next 20 years, you're still going to have the same effect because once you get to your 20, you're going to have a ton of depreciation from all the previous 19 years, right? Is that is that a way to look at it? I'm not really sure. I don't think that it's going to extend the deals. I just think that it's going to reduce people's after-tax uh, IRR because the reality is is that once I force the appreciation on a deal through my value-add strategy, the IRR essentially starts decaying because there's not like I've already maximized my value, right? And right. so if I continue to hold year after year after year, then from a net present value perspective, I'm reducing the overall value yeah. that that investment decision yeah. was. So I don't know. I think that it's just going to be on an after-tax basis, the overall IRR is smaller because what was really happening here is like bonus depreciation allows you to extract the tax benefits today and, and redeploy them today. So in effect, your portfolio IRR increases because you can compound it faster. So I just think that people will compound slower. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll hand the podcast back to you now. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry about that. I'm just curious. <laughs> no, it's a great items. question. It's a really good question. <laughs> no, these are important questions for sure. So we, we kind of covered a lot today uh, from evaluating your own criteria down to, from the sponsor all the way to the opportunities themselves and the tax implications. Is there anything else that we've not covered that investors should be considering when looking at these types of opportunities? I think, and, and again, this sounds uh, repetitive probably, but I really think the biggest benefit you can get to becoming, or the, the biggest thing that will increase your knowledge and, and help you become a better investor is a community. And you know, I say that I'm a, I lead a community, so that's kind of self-serving, but it doesn't have to be left field investors. I strongly believe that you, know, you find a community that is a culture that fits your personality and you will gain so much through that because there's no place else to go to talk about this. Financial advisors 
can't help you because they're not licensed. They don't make money off of this. So how do you learn? You could dive into a book or dive into a podcast, but if you dive into a community, you're going to get the benefit of all the other people in that community be able to learn from them. And so that's my number one recommendation. Then you'll be able to take all the steps that we talked about today to figuring out you know, what asset classes do you want to get into? How do you evaluate a sponsor? How do you evaluate the deal? How do the taxes work? All of that comes after you have some education. And so that's why I'm a big believer in, the, in using a community. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Where could listeners, if they wanted to learn more about left field or perhaps you know become a member of left field, how could they go about doing something like that? Um, there's a couple of ways you can go to our website, leftfieldinvestors.com. There's a, a button up top that says, I think, community or join, and you can uh, you can just jump in and join. We have a, a paid membership, but there's also a free version if you want to test it out first. People can also reach out to me directly. Jim at leftfieldinvestors.com is my email. I spend a large part of my day just talking to community members, and I, I love doing that because even if you're someone that knew who's never invested or you've invested in you know 100 deals. I learned something from every one of those interactions. So love to talk to our community members so you can reach out that way. We love to meet new people and bring them into our, into our community. Absolutely. And I'm in there. I'm answering tax questions from time to time. You know what's really interesting, though? Before we wrap up, we're going to drop all of that in the show notes. Before we wrap up, we have our own Tax Smart Insiders community. It's a community centered around taxes. It's, we basically help people reduce taxes, get clarity on taxes. We're going to have some really exciting things coming up for limited partners because we get a lot of questions around, like, how does this work for limited partners? So we have some exciting things coming up over the next few months in there. Uh, so if you want to check that out, stay tuned. Uh, you'll want to join our Facebook group, www.facebook.com slash group slash tax smart investors. So you could stay up to date. And if you want to become an insider early, you can always go to www.taxsmartinvestors.com slash insiders and uh, join the community there. So Jim, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. A wealth of knowledge. Really excited that we were able to break all of that down. Any final words before we wrap up today? No, I appreciate you guys having me on. I'm looking forward to having you on my podcast, Passive Investing from Left Field. Little plug right there at the end. But no, I uh, and also I would like to say, Tom, appreciate the contributions you've made to our community because you know tax is one of the big questions people have, and and we've seen lately that when uh, when a question pops up, we have someone that can actually answer it rather than most of our answers are. I am not a tax professional, but. Um, <laughs> Now we have something to say, I am a tax professional and so thank but. you for being part of our community. <laughs> <laughs> but it very much depends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I appreciate being on. Uh, absolutely. All right. So that's all for today. We'll catch everybody in the next episode of Tax Smart REI. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.